Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life in times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 519 is September 28, 2010. It is a Tuesday, and uh, today we're going to talk about something kind of unique, a little bit different than I've ever done before anyway. We're going to talk about making the move to the country, making the move from rural life to uh, from city life to rural life. Um, I've talked a lot about the uh, kind of like the the, the uh, I guess the house hunter's version of finding a place in the country. You know, uh, what to look for, how to find places, what makes a good bug out location, what makes a good country home, what I would look for in features and things like that. And I've given you resources to go out and look for it. But I haven't talked a lot about the motivation and the and kind of where it fits in with where we are now at this place in human history. Yesterday, a gentleman sent me an email that told a story. If you haven't listened to yesterday's show, you might want to listen to like the last 10 minutes of it. A gentleman sent in an email and said basically 100 years ago, roughly, my father was a West Texas farmer and had a thousand acres. But at that time, a West Texas farmer with a thousand acres was a pretty poor man, but he could make a, make a living, make some money. And, um, but he saw the change coming and he moved his family closer to the city, but he stayed on the farm so that he could keep working and, and, and bringing a harvest and bringing the boys back, uh, you know, at the, at the harvest season only. And, and that way they could go to the city and find jobs and start working. And eventually the whole family was able to relocate closer to cities and towns. And, and the family's really prospered by that. A lot of people have good jobs now and a good future, but you know, the land is gone. And that his father made that sacrifice for the good of his family because he saw a change coming, a, 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 a new opportunity in the urban world. And, and it was there, and it was, it was really a good opportunity. And that today, it looks like maybe the way that everything is decentralizing with communications and remote work agreements and, and, and just the way that life is moving, that now the opportunity exists in the exact opposite direction. That a hundred years from now, your family might be a lot better off if you figured out how to make this happen today. I know this is long for an intro segment, but when I heard that, when I read that, I haven't been able to think about much else since. So that's what we're going to do with today's show. Before we get into that topic, though, let's talk about uh, taking care of our housekeeping and our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one, MERSRadio.com. That's M-U-R-S hyphen radio.com. What is MERS Radio? Great way to have secondary communications around your property um, and, and bring in security as well. For instance, I have a MERS radio system in my home, two handhelds and a base station. The base station is always on. And I have a couple motion sensors out on my property. And uh, one is by our gate and one is by our front door. And um, one is by the back fence line. And anytime that anything is moving around one of those, I get an alert from that sector. And I know that something's out there. Now, if the dog's in the backyard, I know he's trying to get out of the gate, and I need to keep him from escaping. If no, if the dogs are not out there, I know there might be somebody back there that doesn't belong there. 
Uh, and it's a really great way to have a secondary communication line and security blended into one. So check out MERS-radio.com and call Rob over there if you have any questions. He is a master of his equipment. He doesn't sell a lot of variety. He sells specific equipment that he's found to be the best buy for the money, and he's a 100% master of it. And that means that any problem you have, anything you're trying to accomplish with, if it can be done, he's going to be able to help you get it done. Next up today is the Berkey guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. I just heard uh, that my Berkey Crown System is shipping today, uh, so I'm really excited about that. It's one of those things I've been meaning to add. I have other methods of water filtration, but I consider Berkey to be about one of the best of them out there, especially for home use. Uh, rather than traveling you. So I would, you know, highly recommend these guys. Uh, as I've said, I always try to bring sponsors in that I'm willing to spend my own money with. This is another example. Um, there is nothing more important to you than water, folks. Nothing. There are a few substances in the world that if I took them away for a few days, you would die. Air's one and water's one. You can go a few days without food if you have to. But you're not going to go a few days without water, without ending up dead or damn close to it. Uh, and hopefully somebody rehydrating you with what they call a banana bag in an emergency medical situation. Uh, so make sure you have a way to take care of yourself. And also realize that for those of you that live in, in any kind of city or township where you're getting your water from a public supply system, there's probably things in that water that you don't want in there. And uh, a good water filtration system, be it a Berkey or any other good system, is a, bit, a great alternative to something like bottled water with leaching BPA into it uh, and, and all of the things that go along with distributing water bottles is, is, is insane. So do consider a water filtration system for your home for a variety of reasons. Also remember, check out our gear shop. We have shirts, we have hats, we have challenge coins, we have all kinds of cool stuff. Make sure you get to our uh, gear shop once in a while and check out what we have over there. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, which is about 20 videos by me that are available nowhere else. You get discounts to uh, all of our supporting vendors. There's 22 of them now. Uh, you also get about $100 worth of free eBooks. Uh, some of the discounts are really outstanding. For instance, um, Vic over at uh, Safe Castle gives away his discount lifetime membership. That's 29 bucks. Uh, in one benefit on a $50 a year membership. So if you think this show's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining the MSB. You'll get a good ROI and uh, you'll help support the work we do. Last but not least, I am trying to put together a special show for episode 550. If you have not listened to our one year anniversary show, that's the type of show I'd like it to be, please call 866-65-THINK. Tell me what prepping and the survival podcast community have meant to your life over the last year or two. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main subject today, which again, um, you know, I think I have an interesting perspective on this, and I'm going to share that perspective with you today, because here's the reality. It's a very young child, uh, down into, you know, my, you know, 10 years old, that, that type of range, up till about 12, uh, going right up into the summer of my 13th year. I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And I lived kind of a dual life there as a kid. We lived way out kind of in the, the swampy area, uh, an undeveloped area of the city. We rented apartments at that point. My dad didn't want to buy a house down there. Uh, even though we ended up being there for like 10 years, he really wasn't sure how long we were going to stay. He started a business. His plan was to make a lot of money and, and eventually move back home. He didn't know how long that was going to take him to do. And uh, he didn't want to get locked into a real estate deal at the time, which I think was a mistake because I think he would have done very, very well with real estate at that time in Florida. But, you know, who am I to question that? But we lived in an area where I felt like I was in the middle of nowhere. 
There were miles and miles of trails and swamps that I could tromp through. But yet, you know, it took me maybe 15 minutes to ride my bicycle to the school. And by the time I got to the school, I was surrounded by, you know, not just suburbs, but the, 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 the city vibe. So I grew up with kind of an exposure to both. And then um, when I was just going about to turn 13, we moved back to Pennsylvania Uh, actually, excuse me, in the summer I was going to turn 14 because I started high school that year. And then I went through my high school years in a small town in Pennsylvania where I had always wanted to be. Uh, I wanted nothing more than to move back there. From the day that I was, you know, a little bitty guy starting kindergarten that we moved down, uh, to Jacksonville, I dreamed of the day we would move back and I could hunt and fish with my uncles and, and, and be back in there. And I got up there every time I could. I mean, I would spend my entire summers, uh, staying with my grandparents even before we, we finally moved back. And we went up every Christmas and there was, you know, any time of the year that I could get away and get up there, I wanted to be there. And then something happened at, at 17, uh, I was in the, in high school getting ready to graduate and, uh, just maybe a month or two away from graduation. And I started looking around at this town that I had loved certain things about. And I said, I can't stay here because there's nothing here for me. And so I joined the Army and thought, well, maybe that'll give me a skill and I can come back. And I decided to, even though I could have done anything I wanted in the Army, I decided to be a mechanic. I really didn't know why, but I guess in the back of my head somewhere was, if I go to learn to work on this great big diesel equipment and these big equipment, you know, trucks and uh, cranes and this road construction equipment, well, I can come back here and there's going to be work for me as a mechanic. I can do that working for all these big road construction crews. I can do that for the coal industry. So, you know, my thought was I don't want to be a coal miner. I had worked it, you know, with my dad in, in, in a kind of a bootleg coal operation on and off as a, as a teenager. And I knew how hard that work was. And I went, I don't want to be that for the rest of my life. But that's the industry here. So I left and I went off to the Army for a few years. And I came back and I realized being a mechanic was kind of cool. But I didn't really want to do it for a profession. And I looked around at the town and I realized I had changed and the town had not. So I moved to a big city, Dallas, Texas. I built my career. Um, and over just a few years, I went from being a guy packing boxes for $6 an hour in a warehouse to a six-figure earning salesperson in the technology and telecommunications industry. That led me to a position with uh, a company called Fluke Networks where I took over the Northeast region, which let me go back to Pennsylvania. Um It wasn't feasible for us to live in the area that I grew up, and it really wasn't what I wanted either. So I ended up living in a town called Northampton, Pennsylvania. And in Northampton, I had everything that was beautiful about where I grew up as a teenager in Pennsylvania, but a lot of the destruction of the mining wasn't there, the strip mining and, and things like that. And the, it seemed like the mentality of the people was a little bit less of a depression mentality, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I guess. But people seemed a little more optimistic there. And it was a beautiful place. And it was a small place. And I would tell you, and this is not braggery, this is just based on the demographics of the area, in the neighborhood we lived in, which was about 20 houses spread out over about 35 acres, I was probably the highest earning person there other than maybe the one, and I'm not even sure, maybe the one guy that owned his own business, but pretty much the median income in the area was about $40,000 a year. 
So we were able to have a really good life because we didn't buy the type of house that most people that made the income we, we made would have bought. We bought the house that middle income people would, you know, buy up there. We paid $129,000 for our house. And, and a piece of me will always live in that home. I don't know who's there now. I guess the people we sold it to, they might have sold it by now. I don't know, but it was amazing to live there. And my son got to grow up through, you know, kind of his junior high years in that, that environment. And then I, I just couldn't work for that company anymore. I'll put it that way. And I couldn't do what I was doing anymore. So we came back here because this is where my wife's family was. And now we're back in the middle of the city and we're planning our eventual permanent move to the country. Which means, and I know that was a long way to get to this, but what it really means is that when I talk about this subject, I talk about it with, with what we call in perma, you know, this is permaculture expanding into all walks of life. In a permaculture system with gardening and, and building a forest garden, you talk about stacking and you stack plantings in layers and you stack them in time. So that certain things that you're planting today are small. And they're not a crop for today. And the other things that look more dominant that are for today will eventually die off. And in time, it's not just, you know, how you see it today in layers, but the time stacking takes over. So I've seen the rural versus the country life, not just from a standpoint of living both, but living them at various times throughout my life, throughout, you know, collecting a certain amount of life wisdom and, and things like that. And, and watched an incredible evolution of technology during the same period of time. And, I'll, you know, there's, I'm sure there's other people who have done it, but I never really examined it until I thought about this guy's question yesterday. So I'm sure most people that have done this haven't examined it and explored it. And what it's led me to understand is a few things about why people think the way they do about both sides of the equation and why people limit themselves, why people say, well, I'd love to live in the country, but I can't do that now. Or I'd love to live in the city, but I can't do that now. Or, you know, I, if I move to the country, there's going to be nothing for my kids to do and, and other things like that. One thing I want to talk about is, well, why did I leave in the first place? And when I look at everything I have now, leaving was the right choice. I have this show and I have this audience and I have this community that I dearly love. Uh, people that I would do anything for. You, you folks that listen to this, I mean, I don't think it's easy for you to understand how dedicated I am to the audience and, and how much you really mean to me. Because I know that anybody would say those things, but I wouldn't unless I meant it. I'm not that kind of person. I'm the kind of person that when I say something, it's sincere. Or I don't bother saying it at all unless it's said in jest. I have a wonderful wife. I have a wonderful son. I have a wonderful life. Uh, we have a beautiful home here in Arlington that soon will become somebody else's that even in this real estate market uh, was a smart buy and is going to be easy for us to, to pass on to someone that wants to build their life here in this type of environment. Uh, I have a beautiful place we're going to be moving to. Those who have seen the pictures of it, it is gorgeous. Um, I have what I consider semi-retirement at, at the age of 38. I, I, when I look at what I do every day, and I'm usually done by noon now, and I usually do a lot of other things, but I do them because I want to, not because I have to. You know, I do videos and I do other things, and it's it's because I do research for future shows. I work on my book. You know, all of these things are things I want to do anyway. So I feel like I'm semi-retired at 38. So it was the right move. But why did I make it back then? Because I'll tell you what, at 17, when I put my hand up and said, I solemnly swear 
to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States and became a soldier and left and, and got shipped all over Central and South America. Um, I had no idea that this is what my life would lead to. A little bit of me even kicked around staying in the Army for 20 years, you know. They looked at all those ranks and thought, you know, how, how much they get paid. And, you know, what a sergeant made uh, in the Army, even back then, wasn't a lot of money. But to a kid from the coal region, it looked like a pretty good life. But I left because there was nothing that I could do there that was going to allow me to reach my potential. And, and that's what it really came down to. And that was a sad fact. And it's a sad fact about a lot of towns throughout the United States that are wonderful places to live. But young people grow up there and they look around and they go, what is there here for me? I can be a coal miner like my father. Or I can you know, go to college and get a job as like a school teacher. Uh, or, I mean, there was a very limited plethora of things where you could make a little bit more than minimum wage and actually have some benefits and a decent career and an opportunity for retirement and things like that. And um, it wasn't enough for me. But times have changed. I talked about time stacking, and this is what I mean. In 1990, when I was graduating high school, which seems like yesterday to me in some ways and seems like forever ago in others, there was no way for me to do anything in Minersville, Pottsville, Pennsylvania, that area, other than things that would have an effect in Minersville or Pottsville, Pennsylvania. There was no internet yet. There was no decentralized communications, as this gentleman talked about yesterday. Property was relatively expensive compared to the median income level. Most of the jobs I could have just got out of high school were plant or textile jobs and, or, you know, manufacturing. And they were things where you would work swing shift. And of course, as the new guy, you would work, you know, 11 at night to 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then maybe you would be lucky enough to get on second shift and work 3 to 11. And if you stayed there long enough and were a good drone slave, you could get on day shift and have a life back. And that would take you 5 to 10 years to accomplish that. And, of course, you could get lots of overtime when times were good and get laid off when times were bad. I could go into, you know, making stainless steel sinks where my uncle worked or things like that. My uh, my other uncle, who worked down near Philadelphia, offered to get me a job with Boeing. And I looked at his life and said, that's not really what I want either. And I said, i got to go find something. So I left and I came back and it was the same, so I left again. Today, it doesn't have to be that way. Today, no matter where you live, you have access to information and you have access to opportunity. And I think that we as preppers sometimes tend to shun technology a little bit more than we should. We should not shun the Internet. If it wasn't for the Internet, you wouldn't have the Survival Podcast as part of your daily listening life. So why can't that be something for you in rural America? The biggest thing holding us back in a lot of rural America is lack of access to high-speed Internet. As we move, you know, kind of really out into the wider dispersed areas outside of kind of the little small towns, a lot of places it's impossible to get anything other than dial-up. And uh, that is a limitation, but it's a limitation of slowly being overcome with different technologies. And because of that today, if you are a young person growing up in rural America, you can look at where you're at as a blessing rather than a hindrance to your potential. Because you have the access to any kind of information you want. You also have the access to the best education known to man. You can go to just about any college in America today from a computer terminal. And I think there are some things that are lost there, but you know, you can do it for a lot less money and you can do it 
in a way where it makes sense and where you have maybe a small college that you attend part time and you do your you know your graduate work uh, with a bigger university mostly online. Maybe you go away for a semester to attend in person. These are all options. I'm not saying they're the right things. College was never right for me personally, but had I been able to flex my entrepreneurial muscle. At, at 19 or 20, maybe I wouldn't have joined the army. Maybe I wouldn't have left that small town. Maybe I would have built something there. And there were other things that weren't available and haven't really been available till very recently. And it was part of what I did when I moved back to Northampton, Pennsylvania. It is now possible for you to work a job and never go to your office ever in many situations. I was in sales, so I traveled. So that was, you know, kind of, Something that type of position was doing that long before the internet. They were doing it with phones and faxes, you know, because the the salesperson that managed the Northeast for a company that was in the Northwest, there was no other way to do it than do it remotely. But more and more positions have that opportunity, so it's something that we really need to look at. And if we want to to have that country life, it's a shortcut to get there. And if the job you're working won't give that to you then one of your options is to start looking for another job that would. And let me explain something to you about negotiating with employers. There are two times that you have the most leverage with an employer. Before they hire you and when they're convinced you're going to leave. And the second one is a much bigger risk because if it doesn't work, they just say goodbye. right? But when you're looking to get hired, you have the most leverage you'll ever have. Any employer who wants to hire you, is basically trying to fill a need they, they haven't been able to fill yet. And they're willing to do things like that. That's the, negotiate the highest salary you can going in with any job. But negotiate the terms going in with any job. Look, I'm, I'm here right now. We're talking. I'd like to do this job, but I'm looking to relocate my family outside of the city. I'm looking, and, and give them whatever reason makes sense to them. I'm looking for better schools. I'm looking for more of a small town life for my kids to grow up in. I can do this, you know, negotiate that going in. And maybe you have a shortcut. Because what I learned is that when you make the income of an urbanite and you live in a rural area, you, it, it's like taking a bunch of money and going to Mexico with it or something. Except that you don't have to deal with people that don't speak English and, you know, you're in your own country. And you have your own nation's freedoms. You have a, a, a financial capability that other people do not. And I think that's one of the big advantages right now. I want to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about the reality right now and the trends in cities and the trends in the country and real estate prices and where things are going and why you might want to make this a bigger part of your life than just the pleasure of living somewhere where you're not surrounded by people, the pleasure of living somewhere where, as my father always put it, you're not packed in like a bunch of cockroaches. He used to tell me people aren't supposed to live like this. There's not supposed to be this many people in this small of an area. This is not a human way to live. Um, but beyond that, if we just look at the trends right now, here's what I'm seeing with cities. Cities are getting bigger. They're getting larger, and they're swallowing suburbs. And the trend in city planning today is to build cities as big as possible with the highest population densities possible. You see, for some reason, there's a belief out there that to be green, you go with density. 
The more people I put in one place, the more I centralize resources, the less I have to create infrastructure for, so I don't waste resources this way. People can walk more, uh, they use less fossil fuels, etc. Now, what nobody thinks about is that giant pimple called a city on the planet produces a massive amount of waste that it has no capability of dealing with, and it ships it out to other people to deal with its waste. It has no way to feed its people, so it sucks in food. It has no way to provide water water so it sucks in water but because we've industrialized to the level we have sucking in food and water right now is easy to do and pushing your waste off on somebody else is easy to do so the the urban planner this system works well for them right now they'll sit around and tell us the myth of the carbon footprint and ignore the billions of tons of sewage that they produce that have to go through standard wastewater treatment, use up a lot of our precious water resource, and still aren't really clean when they're dumped back into the environment, and they don't talk about the real pollution that they're producing. The the smog, uh, the toxic fumes, uh, the toxic chemicals, and everything else that goes along with living in the city. And that's what's happening. Bigger cities and a move toward super cities. A move toward making more and more cities like Chicago, like New York, like Tokyo. Where people have everything they need, sometimes within one building. This is an Asian thing that's being talked about being moved to America. Where there's skyscrapers that are so large, your elevators don't just go up and down, they go side to side like a train. And you could literally live in the same building that you work in, that you shop in. And what a wonderful place, because you won't drive an evil car and produce carbon. And I'm not saying that that life is right for, wrong for everybody, but it's wrong for me. And as we're seeing that, we're seeing the city property that is the suburbs, the close-in suburbs, have a, a, a very limited future. Those suburbs are going to have to be eventually converted, a lot of it, into farmland to support these cities because we're going to go into a food shortage. And that land is going to become more valuable for growing things and for people living on it. And more and more people are not going to want to live there. They're not going to want to live with the hassle of having to get into the city. So they might as well, if they're going to work there, live there. Especially as we build these futuristic megacities. Or if I don't have to go into the city, the hell with this. Let me get away from this mess and move out. So there's this belt around a lot of cities that I see eventually falling. Falling to some good things environmentally and falling to some bad things from simple degradation. You can see it in the cities that are dying already, like Detroit. But the cities that are doing well, I think long term, are going to go through these same cycles. Not all of them. There's certain cities that are going to go through these cycles more than others. They're going to be the ones that have the most limited access to water and other resources. So California. Definitely California. New York City, I can't see... Anything other than that place continuing to expand and take places up. But I also see that as being a place that, you know, things like the, the, the suburbs out on Long Island and Staten Island and all like that, that's probably going to be one of the surviving suburbs. You know, it really is because it has so much going for it. But these cities like Chicago, watch a lot of this stuff get eaten up. Watch people just abandon it. Watch more and more people move further in or further out, and that creates this vacancy in the middle. And these older neighborhoods... They'll be the first ones to be, and it's already happening. We have neighborhoods in Detroit being bulldozed and turned into micro farms. 
And what you, we have to understand is the house that's only 20 years old today is going to be 50 years old in 30 years. And a lot of these neighborhoods that look beautiful today are going to go through the same decay. So there's an overall trend that city property is becoming worth more for the urban planner and I think eventually worth less for the person in the, the suburban environment. On the other hand, rural properties, more and more people realize the freedom that this new economy creates and they move toward that rural environment. We start to have, you know, there's only so much of that property available. Most people that live in a place like that live there by choice. A lot of the property that's owned in these places has been handed down from father to son to, to daughter and, and on and on and on for generations. And the, you know, the land or at least a portion of it stays in the family. A lot of places, you know, I've seen places where people, you know, a, a, the old man owns a hundred acres and he doesn't farm it anymore. So as his kids grow up, he sells off three and four acre plots to his kids. As more and more people look for that land, it's going to drive the price of that land up. And it doesn't have to be a lot. This is like one of these tipping point issues. It doesn't have to be everybody. I could be 90% wrong about my projection if I'm 10% right. And 10% of these people move out into the country. Just 10% of what I'm suggesting. What does that do to rural land prices and rural land demand? See, I, I see the land rush today as a gold rush. And we'll see a spike and a drop. But here's the thing. When we see the spike and we see the drop, everybody's going to call this, and this might be 20 years from now. I don't know if it's 10, I don't know if it's 20, I don't know if it's 25. But after the spike, everybody's going to call the, the drop a bust. And, or, uh, you know, a rural land bust. Because all of these people are going to move in and speculate and put big money into it and create derivatives on it and all this other stuff. But if you buy before the spike, which is now, and probably for 10 more years, you have to get this done. If you buy now, when a drop comes, you're still way below where the drop drops to. And it doesn't matter if you want to live there for the rest of your life. Anyway, because what I'm talking about today is finding a place you would be happy to live the rest of your life in. That's really what it's all about. I've said it before, I think that America needs to start buying homes they want to die in again. And that's the way it used to be. And as a kid, in my arrogance and in my understanding of how limited the opportunity was for me, I didn't appreciate that about the people that I was surrounded by. I, I actually remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. We were both talking about getting out. This was after my time in the Army. And I had a little bit more worldly understanding of things and a little bit more understanding of how limited I was there, which on some levels was good, but there was some arrogance and cockiness that comes with being 21 years old. And I said, look, around here, Tim, this is what I see people doing. They get out of school, they find whatever job they can, most of them are kind of dead-end jobs, but a lot of them you can stay at for years and years and years. They save up for a few years, they get a down payment on the house, they buy the house, and they sit on the porch, and they go to work, and they wait to die. And in some cases I was absolutely right, and in some cases I was absolutely wrong. In some cases they bought the house, and they spent the rest of their life living. But they were the lucky ones. They were the ones that had some kind of a real meaningful career and a, and a wage that allowed to live them to live a decent life. The ones I noticed were the ones that I most closely identified with at the time. The ones that had the kind of job I would have to take if I stayed there and I didn't further my training and career and I knew there was opportunity elsewhere. What I should have been able to see, and I just wasn't because I was too young to see this yet, 
was the people that were there that had built wonderful lives for themselves. And don't get me wrong, I have wonderful memories about the place. But it was like everybody that's here that's really happy is old. And there was a lot of truth to that at the time. The people of my generation that were coming up, there wasn't a lot of room for us. The people that did have good careers, you know, they were in their 40s and they were going to be there for another 15, 20, 25 years. They weren't going to leave because there was only so much opportunity there. And there weren't these ways to reach out using a technology bridge to other places. But this is the trend I see now that that opportunity is there. Think about what you can do if you make $70,000 a year and you move to a place where the median income is 35. If you can do that work remotely, you're going to move there. Now, not everybody has that opportunity. If you are a guy that works in a machine shop, trust me, buddy, I'm not putting you down. I wish I had some of your skills. I really do. Um, I would love to know more about you know running metal, metal lathes and things like that, and fabrication. But if that's your job, unless you're going to become an independent business person that does custom things that people can order, you're going to have to go to work. But see, even that, even that, when I tried to find something that would limit you before I got it out of my mouth, and trust me, this wasn't planned, I already had your solution. If you're that metal fabricator today and you can invest in a nice piece of property in a little shop of your own, you can do custom work for people all around the world. Two billion people have internet access. There's so much opportunity today that wasn't there. And all of that opportunity, people are slowly waking up to it. The guy that's been laid off from that metal factory, you know, that fabrication factory that's been, you know, he can make tools, he can make dyes, he can make stuff. That did it for, for 15 years and became a master of his trade, is slowly waking up to the idea, wait a minute, I'm on these forums every day looking at people that want parts for firearms, and I can make those parts. Or I'm on these forums every day with people that, you know, you know my wife's on the forum of people that do arts and crafts and home decorations, and I wonder what I could build that would be unique for things like that. And in every profession, people are waking up to, I can do some portion of what I know my, on my own. And if I can do enough to pay the bills, then we're independent of where we live. And that's pushing people to where they want to be. And I believe the majority of people that live in the suburbs today would rather live in the country than live in the city. That's why they live in the suburbs in the first place. The suburbs are a an attempt to bring country living to the urban lifestyle. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Because if you wanted to be in the city, you'd get a condo in downtown, you'd walk to work. That's no place for my kids to grow up, etc. This is something else I really want people to understand today. We all do what we most want to do all the time. That is going to really stick in a lot of people's throat right now. A lot of people are going to, I'm going to say it again, and it's going to bother you more the second time if you've never heard this before, if you've never had this self-examination before. Everybody does what they most want to do all of the time. Unless you're in jail. Let me give you an out. If you're not in jail, you don't get an out on this. And, and I'll explain to you what I mean. I'll often say things like, yeah, we're moving to Arkansas and that's going to be great, but if I had my way we'd be moving somewhere more like Wyoming or Montana and uh, <clears throat> maybe Colorado, 
but somewhere further out, somewhere with bigger country, somewhere with honestly a more temperate climate. Uh, even you know, I would even look in places like Wisconsin. Um, I would even look at places like New England. New Hampshire would be great. I'd love to be part of this Free State Project. Somewhere more like that, bigger mountains and the more temperate climate and real winter. And uh, But we're going to Arkansas because that's the closest I can get and make my wife happy. So you'd say, well, you're not doing what you really want to do. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. For years I said, well, you know, I've got a son to raise and we've got to get him through high school and all here in, in Texas and get him off to a good start. And, but if he was already born, you know, already raised up and, and, and ready to go on his own, we would, I'd move now. If he wanted to go there, I'd move now and take him with me. And we would say, well, then you're not really doing what you want to do. I was doing exactly what I want to do. We do what we want to do under the circumstances that we're in and we choose which circumstances to change and which circumstances to embrace. So wherever you are in life right now, wherever you're living, no matter what you've told yourself to create some level of comfort and some level of circumstantial victimhood, you're full of shit. You're there because you've chosen to be. And, and somebody right now is packing a box in a warehouse with a set of headphones in, and you're pissed. I'm sorry. You're there because you've chosen to be, for the time, under your circumstances. Everybody that has a wife that says, well, I'd like to do this, but I have to compromise with my wife, that's because you want to. That's because you want your wife to be part of your life. Everyone that says, well, I've sacrificed for my children, that's because you value your children and you love your children and you've sacrificed for them because you've chosen to. No one put a gun to your head. These are all things, and if we don't become in touch with them, then we limit ourselves and we say, well, I can't because... Instead of looking for, well, how can I? And I think that's one of the most important questions. If you really want to make this move, that's what you have to ask yourself is, how can I make this happen? And what am I sacrificing? And why am I doing it? And what is the length of that sacrifice? And does it make sense? And if we don't answer those questions, then we just end up mired in self-choice that we see as someone else's choice. And I think we also put a lot of misconceptions into them. So I want to go through some of the misconceptions right now. Number one is that, well, I've lived in kind of this urbanite environment, suburban environment all my life. And there's people and there's friends and, you know, we have things to do and, you know, places to go. And if we move out in the country, we won't have anything to do. And then it gets extended to your children. My kids won't have friends. My kids won't have this. My kid, you know what your kids won't have? Metal detectors in their freaking schools. That's what your kids won't have. You know? That, they won't have a cop assigned to their school. Those are some of the things your kids won't have. The reality is that the only way you end up in isolationism is by choice. Again. And yeah, there's places you can go if you want to be a hermit in the middle of Idaho where you'll never see anybody. But in most of these, you know, the, the type of country environment that I'm talking about, even a sparsely populated area. I mean... Right now, I live in a place where my lot is the largest lot in the neighborhood at a third of an acre. The average lot in my neighborhood is a tenth of an acre. In a one-city block area, there's thousands of homes, literally, it seems like. I don't know if it's really thousands. It's definitely hundreds. But there's houses everywhere. Looking out my window of my office, I can see one, two, three, four houses just out my window, and I'm only seeing out one window, and there's a shed in the way, and if my shed wasn't there, I could see another house. Up in Arkansas, 
We have behind our gate five houses. Out of those five houses, we are occupying an area of about 200 acres. Within that 200 acres is another 100 acres that the land developer left as a permanent buffer zone that will never be developed and never be owned by anybody that he's going to retain as a buffer. And it's not really suitable for building anything on. He just decided there needed to be a natural buffer zone that would be, he's kind of an environmentalist type guy. So we're looking at, you know, 300 acres of land and five houses. I know every person that lives there on a first name basis. Every time I'm up there, they come down to see me or I go up to see them. I know their children. I know them better than I know the people that live on my cul-de-sac here in Arlington. Because they're more open. They're more willing to reach out. There's more community there. I only go there about every other month for a few days. Imagine living there. When I go into the small town of Hot Springs, everybody's friendly. I talk to people. I, you know, we have conversations with people about, you know, that run little shops. How did you buy this shop? Where we talked to one guy, you know, they bought the shop. They were there for 10 years. They were selling it and they're selling it. They're going to go and they're going to move down to Mexico. We had that conversation in five minutes while we were buying one of his little, you know, doodads to give to our niece. It's not isolationism to live in the country. I think the community there in many ways is much stronger. I also think there's another view that if I'm going to move to the country, I need this vast area of land. I need 50 acres, 100 acres. When I ask myself how much land is enough, I say first, it's relative. That's your choice. Your choice to how much land is enough. And then I say, well, how much land is enough for me? And I have five acres and it's enough. I prefer 10. I would love 20. I would adore a thousand. Right? But I know I can't make use of that much land. But once I get over about 10 acres, I want the land more as hunting land and to be a protector of the land. To make sure no one else does anything to that land. To let it be what it is. And then I say, let's pull really back and say, if I want to live as a homesteader, I want a homestead. I want my garden. I want my greenhouse. I want a little forest garden. I want a berry grove. You know, how much land is enough to do that? My little chicken coop, whatever it is that does it for you, one to two acres is plenty. And I think two acres is beautiful. And that's very affordable in a lot of rural America right now. And the further you go out, the more affordable it becomes. And I'm telling you that in time, the further you go out, the more valuable it will be. And when I say there is a, there is a threshold, there is that island of nothingness in the middle of nowhere, when I say further out, that if that's you, that's fine. But what's going to be really valuable in the future is going to be good rural land, relatively close to small town communities, with small town communities that are far out from large urban centers, with good means of communication and transportation between the three. That's going to be such a sweet spot. And there are tremendous values in that type of property right now. Now, does it mean it's cheap? It's not what it means at all. It means that there's value. In other words, if I'm wearing a... I would never do it because I don't see the value in, in a Rolex. But I do understand that I can sell it. So if I were wearing a $10,000 Rolex watch, okay, $10,000 retail price Rolex watch, 
that easily would be able to be taken to any pawn shop in America and sold for five grand on the spot like that. And I was willing to sell it to you for $3,000. $3,000 is a hell of a lot more money than I'll ever pay for a watch, ever. And if you gave me a billion dollars, I would give away a half a billion before spending $10,000 on a watch. I just think it's wasteful. But I would do it before I spent $3,000 on the watch, honestly. But if it's a $5,000 immediate return, and you're wearing the watch and say to me, Jack, this watch is worth ten grand. Here's a every store around here will pay you five for it. I need the money now. And I know you're not scamming me. Will you give me three grand for it? Of course I will. Why? Because the value. It's expensive. It's even extremely expensive relative to the item. But since it's able to be resold for a higher price, it has value. And it's not the same formula because you can't buy this land and flip it for 20% more tomorrow. But it's underlying value. It's real worth. And when Chris Martinson was on, this also had me thinking this way. He calls worth first level, second level, and third level worth. Or primary, secondary, and third level worth. And primary, primary wealth is land. Primary wealth is a stand of trees. Primary wealth is the farm. Secondary wealth is its production. And tertiary wealth is all the paper bullshit that's used to control primary and secondary wealth. And when we look at a piece of property like that as a piece of first level wealth that we can produce, that can then turn around and produce secondary wealth for us. Whether that's wealth that we turn into third order wealth by selling it off, like running a small farming operation, or consuming it ourselves and surplanting our expenditures of third order wealth, it's an extreme value. And to me, it's more value, it's got a better value ratio today than it will ever have. All of these people that are out there telling you, don't buy houses, don't buy real estate, blah, 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 they're full of shit when it comes to the right kind of real estate. Because where is Jim Rogers putting his money? Where is George Soros putting his money? Not that I idolize either one of these guys, but when you start looking at where billionaires are putting their money, they know what the hell they're doing. They're buying rural land, folks. Now, they're buying you know thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. Well, I can't play that game of Monopoly, right? That's not me. But I can buy my little five-acre plot, my two-acre plot, my one-acre plot. I can emulate that. And improve my quality of life at the same time. And I think we need to start looking at how we can pull this off before we're old. I have talked to so many people in my life, and here's what they say. Well, one day I'm going to retire. When I have that retirement money coming, I can sell this big house in the city, and then I can move out in the country and live that dream. The kids will be off at school. You know, They'll be able to do whatever they want. I can do whatever I want, and I can get my little shop, and I can tinker around, or I can get my tractor and put in my little micro farm, or whatever it is, to go fishing and hunting every day, or take people for walks in the woods. You might be dead first. Do it now if you can. And if you can't do it now, ask, how can I do it as soon as possible, if it's what you want? I am going to tell you something that you will find oversimplifying, but if you'll try it, you'll, you'll be amazed at its results. The shortest way to solve a problem is to start asking yourself day and night, how can I solve this problem? That's it. There are a million answers, a million solutions to any problem. Out of that million solutions, maybe 5% will work for you. 
All right? And they'll be custom to your tolerance level, what you really want, how much sacrifice you're willing to make, etc. And if you ask that question every day, multiple times a day, if you focus on it and say, this is what I really want, things will start to align. You'll start to cherry pick the portions and the solutions that will work for you and the angles that will lead you to your goal. And in far less time than you believe is possible, you will have a formulated and operational solution in place. And you will be able to get what you want done. You can do that, or you can wait to be 70. It's up to you. A lot of us don't make it that long. It's not good enough for me to know that I could have stayed in corporate America and kept earning the big salary and working my ass off. And saying, well, you know what, man, with the kind of money I'm making, I can retire early, baby. I can do the 59 and a half thing. Start digging into that big, huge 401k at that point. You know, Fluke even had a pension. I don't think they do anymore, but they even had a pension at the time. And it got converted at some point. So I got to took all that pension money, too, and converted it into something and stayed there. And, you know, just worked as hard, as long as I could. And to realize that, you know, working for that 59 and a half and at 52, I could have killed over from a heart attack from stress. Not good enough. Not good enough. There are sacrifices. There's definitely sacrifices. There's certain things that are very attractive about living the typical American dream life. If there weren't, no one would do it. It's nice to have a big pretty house that you can have friends come over to. And have dinner parties at. And backyard barbecues at. But do you know what I see in most suburban people when they do that? I want to show you what I have. I want to show you. That's what I see. And when I worked in corporate America with, with executive people that I was working you know, as, as uh, contemporaries with, but our backgrounds were very different. They came through college. Most of them had master's degrees. You know, They had been in this you know, corporate bullshit environment. They had worked their way through it. Where I kind of just bored through it and went right to where my potential was, just out of pure will and grit. And I didn't really fit in with them. And I would, they would talk about dinner parties. They're going to serve this and that. I'm like, I serve freaking brisket. You know, do you have that catered? No, not freaking catered. I work for 18 hours before people get there by drinking beer and watching my smoker go. You know, you have an above ground pool. Oh, that's tacky. Things like that. And see, it's not that the above ground pool is not just as useful. First of all, in many ways, it's more useful than a lot of these tiny pools that these other people had. Because that's all they could fit in because they had to dig the ground up and all. It's that to them it's about, I want to show you what I have. My TV's bigger, my car is newer, my kid is doing better in soccer. And it's not really like these people are that bad. It's not really that conscious. They're just living in an environment where that's what just occurred. Since everything's about getting a promotion, making more money, having a higher credit limit, on and on and on and on it goes, it's a natural result that, well, if I'm doing all this stuff, then it's all about the results, and here's my results, and let me show you my results, and you show me your results. You know what I always saw in the country when people had people over to their house? And this is the fundamental difference and the big reason I want to live there instead of here. Let me share what I have with you. No matter what it might be. Come into my 120-year-old creaky floor house. Hey, sit down at my old, beat-up, 
uh, dinner table and have dinner with my family the exact way that we do all the time. There's always more. There's always room for one more at the table. Push together. Let's go get a chair out of the living room and get this guy a seat. Nobody trying to demonstrate how much they had. Simply saying, of what we have, you're welcome to some of it. Families getting together in backyards and just not really giving a damn about, you know, what people had or how new something was. Simply wanting to be together. And the reason is because in those environments, people tend to be in the same place. They've all had to work really hard for what they had, but they did it in a different way. And a lot of themselves are in what they have. They weren't able to go out and buy it with a MasterCard. They didn't call a guy to build the deck. You know, The deck might not be perfectly straight, But nobody that's sitting out there having a beer with you is going to say anything about it because they were probably all out there with you swinging a hammer, building a deck, and you probably helped them build their own. This is the difference. And it comes with an ethic that I find lacking in our urban environments where our, our reward system is based on get it now, pay for it later. And I don't mean just in credit. I mean in so many other things. I mean in what people are told is important. Why do people stay in school and go to college now? To get an education or to get a job? I mean, they pay, say, lip, they pay lip service to an education. But if you're going to get an education, shouldn't you be educated in the things that you love and care about? Why, are we, why do we have people going to college? Why are people going to college and spending $10,000, $20,000 a year to go to a school where half of what they learn they will never use? And more than half of what they learn, they don't even want to know. Let me say that again and really drive that home for you. Why are people spending ten to $20,000 a year to go to an institution that's supposed to serve them where half of what they learn they will never use and over half of what they learn they don't care to know? And those people that go through that system are the primary wealth holders in these urban environments. And you wonder why they're screwed up. And I don't just mean the urban environment, I mean the people. Why are the people screwed up? Why are they so far off their life path? Last night I watched a show back in, this is small town America. Morgan Spurlock, uh, the guy that did uh, Super Size Me and lived for, you know, for 30 days on minimum wage. He's got a show called 30 Days Now and he did one on coal mining. And he was with these coal miners in West Virginia. And a lot of them are very torn because they know what coal mining is doing to the environment. Especially, you know, the, the strip mining and mountaintop removal stuff. Uh, but these guys are all shaft miners. And even they know what they're doing to the environment. They know about slurry and runoff and, 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 and all of the waste products that are produced. But they also know how dangerous their jobs are. They watch all these older men that have been there with them in these mines fall to black lung one after the other after the other. And when you ask any one of them, why do you do it? They said, to do it for the money. So I can provide a life for my kids. And this is the problem with, with our society today. We do everything for the money. Where can I make the most money under my circumstances? We have stopped asking the more important question. What can I do that will give my life the most meaning? And that doesn't mean being a monk and being poor. It does mean figuring out how to make do with less. 
It means being a modern survivalist. See, I, I, again, I'll bring us back to a grounding with survivalism. If we prepare to be able to live our lives without systems of support, then eventually we create a solution for ourselves where we can live with limited systems of support very, very, very well. Survivalism lives, leads to early retirement when practiced properly. And I think that what you really need to, to ask yourself today is, do I want out of the city if you're there now? Or if you're in the country, do I want to improve the way I'm living out here right now? If you feel trapped, you have to ask yourself, how did I do this to myself? How did I do this to myself? If you ask any other question, you're full of shit. You're not being honest with yourself. You're not going to get an honest answer from yourself if you can't ask yourself the honest question. How did I do this to myself? Why did I do this to myself? What good has come from it? What bad has come from it? What sacrifices am I willing to make to change it? What is my timeline for change? The big thing I want you to understand is it can be done. It can be done. But it comes down to you and what you want, how you want it, where you want it, how bad you want it, and when you want it. It really does come down to you. And I think that now is a good time for you to ask yourself the question. And the first question is, do I want it? Because a lot of people think they do and they really don't. And I don't mean that you're not willing to sacrifice so you don't want it. I mean, they don't really want it. They they really like what they have. They like bringing people over and saying, look at what I've done. Look at what I have. Let me show it to you. But I think the vast majority of people, they follow that human instinct, and what they would really prefer when they have someone over to their home is to say, let me share what I do have with you, regardless of what it is. And I just think that ethic is stronger the further we move away from urban environments. And I know there's some really good, solid people that think that way in the city and in the suburbs. And I know that if you're listening to this show, you're probably one of them. So I'm not putting everybody down that's there. Hell, I'm here too, right? Just because I have my escape plan in motion doesn't mean I haven't been here for a long time. But I know the other side of being that person. You're surrounded by the other type. And those people aren't bad either, folks. I'm just telling you, they haven't woken up. They've been put into a slumber. It's been done to them with debt. It's been done to them with a formalized education system that is designed to create compliant, willing drones. It has been done to them with a societal reinforcement that this is the way things are supposed to be. But the problem with people like us no matter where we choose to live. The problem with people like us is we wake up to that lie. We become aware of it. We realize that we can have more. We can be more independent. We can be more self-reliant. We don't need other people to take care of us. And that the people that we have into our lives, we want there by choice. I mean, overall, I, I just want you to think about a lot of the things that I've said today. I know this is a way different show than normal. This is just me kind of bullshitting with you for an hour. But I think what we talked about is important today. Hopefully it's got you thinking, and hopefully it's got your mind working, and hopefully it's got you wondering, what can I do to change my life to what I want? 
whether it's moving to the country or not, because this is about more than that today. But I do think the time is right. I think the time is better now than it's ever been. And I think there will be people 10 years from now that look back at this period of time and go, why didn't I do this now? Because the prices will go up. The costs will go up. The expense of doing it will go up. One thing I've seen with real estate prices, and I'm always shopping for rural real estate, always, 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 always. I've watched the prices of real estate throughout our country drop through the floor, and I've watched good, solid rural real estate stay right where it was, and some of it gone up a little bit. And I've watched it continue to sell because there's too much going for it. And there's too much new opportunity to live there without being stuck geographically to a place, whether it's owning your own business, whether it's working remotely, or whether it's just changing what you do in your life, the opportunities are there. I'd really like to suggest to you that you consider that, and you think about it, and you ask how that fits with your life plan and where you're going. Does it make sense for you? And if it does, start asking the question multiple times a day, how do I change this? How do I solve this problem? I'm telling you it's that simple. I know it sounds ridiculous, but think of how ridiculous it sounds to say that all our money is loaned into existence, but yet it's true. Sounds The mind repels it due to its simplicity. How do I solve this problem? We'll find answers for you. Have the courage to ask it every day. Have the courage to be honest with yourself. And have the courage to listen to and examine the solutions that come from it. And above all, remember, if you're in a marriage, that's a partnership. It's a 100% partnership. Instead of worrying about what you want, find the place that the two of you want the same thing. And if the two of you work for that, you'll get there a hell of a lot faster than either would get to their ideal individual. And it'll be amazing that you can do it together. And with that, this is from Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.